Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Morning on a Monday, the 21st of August. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. I'm David Gura in New York. Francine Lacqua is in London. Tom Keene is off this week, and I love this story that Fran and Scarlett Fu wove last week that uh, I heard about secondhand. Tom and I were taking time off to climb Mount Everest, I gather. Well, with the summit in sight, one of us had to turn back to host the show, and here I am. Our first guest is Nathan Sheets. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. He's the chief economist at P. Jim Fixed Income, of course, former undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs. Join me and Francine on TV now here on radio as well. Great to have you with us, Nathan. And let me start by looking forward to the meetings in Jackson Hole a little bit later uh, this week. We talked about this some on, on television. What are you listening for? What, what, what normally transpires at Jackson Hole as much as you can say what normally transpires at, uh, at this annual event? What are you going to be listening for? So I think the uh, the key in these meetings is uh, what we hear about the inflation process. Uh, central banks are uh, very focused on why, uh, on the one hand, the global economy is performing well, but on the other hand, why inflation is as low as it is. And I think that there will be a lot of uh, a lot of reflections and thinking. Uh, about whether the inflation process has changed in some significant way. Uh, For example, uh, as a result of shifting uh, demographics or uh, some deep change uh, in the economy. We heard her make the case uh, now a few months back that uh, the inflationary headwinds we're seeing are transitory. Uh, She has since walked that back a little bit. But how much of the conversation do you think is going to center on that, the temporariness uh, of what we're seeing? So I would say, particularly in the United States, that is uh, a key question. There are some temporary factors that have influenced uh, uh, consumer prices uh, of late. Uh, uh, Medical costs have uh, influenced the CPI, uh, uh, cell phone plans, and so forth. But it does feel more and more like uh, that's only part of the story. And the fact that this soft inflation performance is, is echoed in many other uh, of the advanced economies uh, in recent months, suggests that maybe there's something deeper, deeper at play. What, Nathan? And if it is something deeper, do we need to try and fix that, the root of the cause, or do we just need to look at a different set of numbers? So I think for uh, for central banks, the question of what is driving this is 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 a very deep one. Uh, uh, I think part of it uh, may have to do with. Uh, The fact that inflation has been very low for a long time, and once uh, inflation expectations are anchored, it uh, becomes very difficult uh, to to raise them. I think that uh, the experience in Japan uh, in in recent years uh, very much highlights uh, highlights that challenge. Uh, So this is is, uh, a, a very tough set of issues. Is it just temporary? Uh, is there something deeper uh, at play? And ultimately, the issue of what uh, what drives inflation expectations for but, consumers. 
Nathan, were you surprised? So the uh, both the European Central Bank and the Fed kept on saying that actually inflation will be fine in a couple of quarters once you know the market, the labor market starts stabilizing, and that will feed into wage growth. And they've kind of had to reassess that and go with what the market was expecting. Does that mean they lose credibility? So uh, the baseline macroeconomic models uh, uh, focus on the relationship between uh, slack in the labor market, the unemployment rate, uh, and inflation. And I really think that even in this very tough uh, situation and circumstance that central banks are in, that that relationship is uh, the best that the central banks have to go on. But as you suggest, their confidence in that model uh, is uh, is, uh, not as great as uh, as it has been in the past. And so I think they're having to, uh, in some sense, uh, drive by looking through the rearview mirror and uh, look at where the economy has been and where it is. And where it has been and is, is a, 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 a place where inflation remains very, very low. Nathan, we had this uh, ECB forum a few weeks back in, in Portugal, and um, there was news there about a new effort at coordination among central banks. Do you, do you expect that conversation to, to continue? That, that forum ended up making a lot more news, I think, than a lot of people uh, expected, in part because there was some market misinterpretation of what uh, Mario Draghi uh, and others had to uh, had to say. Do, do you expect there to be continuity between that conference and this one? So I would say uh, the issue of central bank cooperation is one that is sometimes, I think, misunderstood. Uh, the Fed, uh, the ECB, the Bank of England primarily have domestic mandates for price stability and for the Fed, uh, in addition, uh, full employment. So when they're talking about cooperation, it is primarily uh, an exercise in information sharing, in relationship building, and only in uh, very rare instances is it the formal coordination of policy. Now, of course, we're in a global economy and uh, central banks have to pay attention to what other central banks uh, are doing because there are meaningful there are meaningful uh, spillover effects. But I wouldn't expect there to be much talk in Jackson Hole of a formal uh, coordination, but a lot of, uh, of of time spent comparing notes and better understanding what other central banks are thinking and how they're assessing the developments in their economy. We're at this point uh, in, in the conversation about central banking where you pull up a speech and you do control F and you try to find all the instances of the word taper or, or, or <laughs> derivations thereof. Uh, is Mario Draghi under pressure to, to say more about the tapering process at this point? I think that uh, that uh, Mario Draghi will be moving in a very uh, uh, deliberate way uh-huh. uh, on his communication strategy. And I uh, think these reports we've heard over the last week or so that he's likely to focus on international economic issues and less on tapering and uh, the trajectory of monetary policy in the euro area are, are credible. So I think it will be a very interesting presentation, but maybe somewhat more of uh, an academic or intellectual exercise than a blueprint for where the ECB will be headed. Where should, what should the ECB worry about? Their Italian elections, unclear which way they would go if they were to be held now, and they have to be um, held before March of next year. Yeah, there are uh, significant uh, political risks 
uh, for the ECB uh, to be factoring in. And I think that very much forms uh, a, a backdrop for them. I would say an imminent concern for them is as they start thinking about reducing the size uh, of their purchases, what does that mean for bond markets in Europe? And particularly, does tapering pose any risks for bond markets in Italy and Portugal, where uh, the ECB has been a, uh, a, significant, uh, a significant borrower? Uh, I think there is an underlying story in these countries of recovery and stronger economic performance. But even so, having the ECB uh, reduce the purchases and ultimately exit could have uh, implications yeah. for demand and yields in those economies. Uh, Nathan, in 20 seconds, should they worry about the level of the euro? Is it getting too high? The ECB uh, watches the euro uh, closely. Uh, and uh, levels uh, such as what we have today in the past have drawn comment uh, from the ECB. On the other hand, the euro economy is performing very well, and a stronger European economy is able to absorb a stronger currency and, uh, and continue to grow at an acceptable pace. So there's a balance there, but the ECB will be paying attention to it closely. All right, Nathan, thank you so much. Nathan Sheets there, PGM Chief Economist, stays with us. Euro region bonds today gaining with treasuries while the dollar is steady after the drop we saw on Friday. Of course, it's all about the central bankers meeting at Jackson Hole. As Nathan was saying, it's about growing unease about persistent low inflation that we'll be watching out for and what they can do about it. This is Bloomberg. Here with Nathan Sheets of PGM, formerly of the Treasury Department, our Bloomberg 1130 uh, studios, having a conversation about monetary policy. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about fiscal policy uh, as well. Help us understand the degree to which personnel matters uh, at this point, uh, Nathan. There's a new survey of economists out indicating that uh, a lot of them, the majority of them, think that Gary Cohn is going to be the next uh, Fed chair. You look at what this president, this administration is going to be able to do with regard to appointments, and uh, he, the president, could radically change the, the configuration of the, the Fed. What's your sense of how that's going to change policy going forward? So uh, on the one hand, my sense is that uh, 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 personnel is, is crucially important. And uh, who, is, who is leading uh, the Federal Reserve is, uh, is very significant. And uh, issues about uh, their uh, background and how they view the world and how, uh, m- how flexible they may be in implementing monetary policy versus how uh, rules-based they may be uh, could have uh, very different implications for where U.S. Uh, monetary policy is headed. Uh, but it's also the case that there is uh, a fair amount of, of inertia inside uh, of the Federal Reserve. And part of that uh, reflects the fact that you have uh, Reserve Bank presidents who have long tenures and they have significant impact on the trajectory of policy. And the, uh, the Federal Reserve staff is, is very influential in framing the policy decisions. So uh, I do expect that the changes uh, in personnel that are likely over the next year or two at the Fed are likely to change the tone of of Fed communication and to some extent uh, the trajectory of policy. But it won't be uh, an abrupt shift or an abrupt discontinuity uh, in, in Fed policy. 
With some regularity, we hear the, the clarion call from the Treasury Department about the debt ceiling, raising the debt ceiling. We're hearing it again from, from this new Treasury Secretary. Uh, Steve Mnuchin would like to see that done cleanly. He'd like to see it done uh, on time. He's already uh, begun to use so-called extraordinary measures to make sure the government can continue to pay the bills that, that come due. How much has this conversation changed? How worried are you about the government raising the debt ceiling here on the heels of, of an August congressional recess? As a, as a macroeconomist, I would say one of the very important third rails uh, for U.S. Uh, policy is taking steps to continue to foster confidence in the U.S. government and our ability to uh, make good on our obligations. Uh, as, a, as an economist, I see uh, uh, significant downside and essentially no upside to pushing the issue of, 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 of funding the government and the debt ceiling uh, to, the very, to the very brink. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's important that we get this uh, issue resolved and we get it resolved uh, constructively. Now, that said, I do worry that the uh, political dynamics uh, afoot are likely to make this uh, uh, more challenging rather than less challenging. Uh, with uh, in the past, the Democrats uh, owned the government; the Republicans were 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 the challengers in the opposition. But it's not clear uh, who owns uh, continuing uh, the government's operations in the current uh, in the current configuration, and I think that creates uh, some potential. Uh, stresses and, and challenges in getting this issue resolved over the next several weeks. Nathan, whose job is it to, to make it workable? I don't know. Is it the president's? Is it the chief of staff? I think ultimately uh, it is responsibility uh, of the president of the United States, along with uh, the speaker of the House and the majority leader in the Senate, to engineer uh, an approach that uh, manages a solution to this problem, uh, that uh, they are the leadership, they are the political leadership, and this is a political problem, and it's one that there's no, really, there's no option other than to find a solution. Right, but how does he do that? How much political capital has he lost so far with Republicans, and how does he regain the trust? Uh, I think that uh, that uh, the congressional Republicans, uh, there is within the the Republican caucuses in the Senate and the House, there are a lot of centrifugal forces, uh, a, a, a lot of differing views, and uh, it's 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 going to be a challenge. Uh, and it's not clear how we get from where we are today uh, to a place where uh, the leadership that I described, the president, the speaker, and the majority leader, uh, are able to leverage the, uh, the, the Republican caucus. And uh, for, for, for debt ceiling, mm. they also need uh, some Democratic votes. That's going to require 60 votes in the Senate. Nathan Sheets, very generous with your time uh, this morning doing TV and radio with us. Uh, this is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. Nathan Sheets of PGM joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. More to come. This is Bloomberg.
David Gura and Francine Lapa, Francine in London. Tom Keen off this week. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Continuing our conversation about Washington now with Brad Blakeman. Uh, he was a member of President George W. Bush's senior staff. He joins us now from our bureau, our Bloomberg 99.1 studios in Washington, uh, D.C. Great to have you with us, uh, Mr. Blakeman. And let me begin just by asking you uh, about um, the, the role of the chief of staff uh, in the White House. So much of, of our attention has been on John Kelly and the degree to which he's changed the way things are run at the White House over these last uh, couple of weeks. In a vacuum, what, what's the role of a, of a chief of staff? Well, the chief of staff is the gatekeeper to the president. He controls the president's schedule and access and direction. Um, That is really the coin of the realm of a president is his time. There's a a finite amount of time the president has. It has to be spent well. And there has to be a direction in in, uh, where the administration is going in legislation and policy and regulation. So that is the uh, role of of the manager, if you will is a chief of staff who's able to manage the staff, but also manage uh, the care and feeding of the president as well as his official uh, duties as president. And how much of, of his or her responsibilities include dealing with, with the Congress? I know a lot's been made here, the fact that uh, you look at John Kelly and, and, and his tremendous amount of military service. I gather some of that was spent uh, as a liaison to, to Capitol Hill. How important is that relationship between the chief of staff and the legislative branch? It's important, but it's, it's not a day-to-day uh, concern. Uh, that's why an effective team has to be built around an effective manager, a chief of staff. He needs now a good political person, a good legislative person to work the day-to-day uh, issues of the Hill, a communications person and policy. That team of management, policy, communications, legislation, and political is really uh, the, the benchmark of where this uh, president is going to go because he needs a good team to rely on in order to carry out his instructions. Mr. Blackman, how would you advise the president today after the week he's had? Well, he has a great opportunity uh, tomorrow in Phoenix. Uh, he's going to be giving a rally, and I think he needs to set the tone now as president to unite the country um, from every part of the country, every person in the country, whether you're Republican, Democrat, whoever you are, wherever you are. Uh, we're all Americans, and the problems that face us are not um, – are, are not just uh, problems of one person or one group. Uh, he, we've got to get the economy moving. We need uh, trade. We need infrastructure. We need health care. Uh, the big ticket items that the president promised must be kept now. And it wasn't only promises the president made. These were promises the Republicans. Everyone who stood for office in 2016 made the promises to make America great again. Well, that comes with policy. And right now, Uh, There's a legislative agenda coming up in the fall that must be dealt with. They must be dealt with affirmatively, and failure is not an option. Right, but how would you advise Republicans that maybe took offense or absolutely did not agree on how the president handled Charlottesville? Well, you know, uh, the the president, again, has an opportunity in Phoenix to set set a tone. Uh, The president's written statements on Charlottesville – uh, we're fine. It's when he went off script in, in Tuesday, and uh, and and damaged those written statements that were uh, that were fine. Um, and, and but Republicans have to understand, we have global issues. We have national issues, uh, heady issues that need to be uh, solved. And uh, we only have one president. He's our president for at least four or eight years, and and we have to make sure that he's successful. 
Brad, I'm looking at a, at a copy of the New York Times, a piece in there by uh, Jeremy Peters and Maggie Haberman looking uh, at uh, the, the role of Steve Bannon in this administration before he left and, and the way things will change now. And a line sticks out to me. Uh, they write, Bannon's exit will clarify that only one person, Mr. Trump, for better or worse, has always been his own chief uh, strategist. What's your sense of the intractability uh, of this president? We were talking about John Kelly, uh, the degree to which he's begun to change the way the White House uh, is run. Now that you've observed this president in this role for more than, than seven months now, uh, is he somebody whose who's, uh, way of doing the job can be changed, do you think? Sure, because I think he's success-driven. And uh, right now, if I were the chief of staff, I'd lay before the president the promises that he made in the campaign and, and, and then set forth a legislative agenda to provide for deals to be closed. The president now has to work Congress. And the success of this president will be his ability to keep his promises on the big ticket items like infrastructure and taxes and, and, and budget and military. The things that he promised the American people, they're going to remember when they go to the polls. And by the way, 2018, we have every member of the House up for reelection, as well as one third of the Senate. And if Republicans want to hold that majority, then they have to have a record to run on. You've, you've uh, done work as a communications consultant. I wonder what you, you make of what we've seen with regard to the, the, the president tweeting, the president not sticking to script. I think a lot of his Republican supporters in particular would like nothing more uh, than for him to be talking about tax reform now, if not exclusively, then, then, then almost so. How do you get somebody to, to, to stay on topic? How do you get the president to focus on, on these issues that would make him, you say he's success-driven, maybe lead to some, some legislative successes? Well, I, I would tell the president, sir, you can be spontaneous and, and you can be reactionary to, to news as it happens, but there's got to be a method to the madness. And uh, well, there has to be a communication strategy that's honored by the staff, but also honored by the president. And, um, and, and I think there's got to be more uh, deliberative tweeting. There's got to be more targeted tweeting. Uh, the president certainly understands the targeting of messaging. He's, he's done it his entire life. Now it needs to be a little bit more honed and, and, uh, and uh, thought out. And I think General Kelly needs to hire somebody sooner rather than later, a good communication, strong communications person who I think the president respects and, and will, um, and, and will uh, uh, adhere to. And you see a president that is willing to listen. What we, we've heard many times and over and over is that you have people that advise him, but then he goes at it his own way. Well, I think a lot of the problem this White House has is, is simple to me, and that is the people who get you to the White House and the campaign are not necessarily the people you need when you get there. And I think once you, you peel away the, the campaign staff and, and start hiring professional people who know Washington, know how it works, uh, insiders are not necessarily swamp creatures. Um, they, can, they can help you navigate this town and, and get you the success that you need in order to rack up uh, the achievements uh, that are the basis of the promises you made in the campaign. So I think discipline is is key to an effective White House, but more importantly than that is teamwork. Mr. Blakeman, who will define conservatism in the U.S.? Is it Bannon or is it the Murdochs? No, I think conservatism is going to be uh, displayed by the parties and the leaders within the parties. It's not the outside people who or the, or the influencers who uh, determine conservatism. It's the people who are actually on the front lines who are putting their votes down. It's the president who's signing bills. Those are the things that directly affect the American people, and that will determine uh, the conservative movement in America. 
do you recognize uh, the, the, the Republican Party, the, the views the Republican Party espoused by this president? You're somebody who, as I said, worked for President George W. Bush. How much has the, the party changed since then? Well, we're not keeping to, to the platform. And uh, every four years, parties uh, deliberate, they fight, they conjole, uh, they trade, they bargain, they compromise on the platform. My suggestion is get back to basics. Get back to the platform that was hashed out at the convention. This is what we stand for. Uh, honor the promises that were made, and you'll be wildly successful. The American people expect health care. They expect tax reform. They expect infrastructure, debt reduction, a strong military. These are the, these are the things that you should be focused like a laser beam this fall on. Uh, tax reform must come. We have to have major accomplishments so that we can run in 2018 to retain our majorities in the House and the Senate. All right. Brad Blakeman, thank you very much for the time this morning. Brad Blakeman joining us from our 991 studios in Washington, D.C. He was an advisor to President George W. Bush. Joining us now on our phone lines is Grover Norquist, the president of Americans for Tax Reform. Always great to speak with him to hear uh, his thoughts on the debate over tax reform in Washington uh, in D.C. Grover, great to speak with you. Let me start by asking you how much the, the, the agenda has changed from a policy perspective now that Steve Bannon is out of the White House. I think last we spoke, I asked you about a plan that Mr. Bannon had floated here to apply a new tax on Americans making more than $5 million a year. So he was uh, wrestling his way into the conversation over uh, tax reform. What changes for you now that he's out of the White House? Uh, Nothing. He was not a participant in the debate on tax reform. The one idea that it's reported that he put forward, although it seemed to sort of be a dead cat bounce, he didn't even seem to repeat it. He wanted to have a higher marginal tax rate on the uh, highest income Americans and, by the way, most small businesses, because he thought that was populist. It was one of the stupider, dumbest, most destructive ideas ever put forward. And I'm pleased to see it got zero support. I don't think that's why he got fired, uh, but his stepping aside to do other things has may have an effect on immigration policy. It has zero effect on tax policy. There is complete unanimity. This is this is what gets lost in all the jangle and because of the conflict on health care. Mm. The House, the Senate, and the White House, the big six, the top two guys from each, Mnuchin from Treasury, uh, Cohn from uh the economic advisors, as well as the speaker and the majority leader and their tax guys, all six are, are meeting, talking daily. Their staffs are talking repeatedly every day. They've been doing so for uh, more than a month. Uh, but now CBO and joint tax are free to score bills dealing with tax reform instead of being caught up with uh, efforts to score what's going on on health care. Yeah, so Ch- Chairman Brady telling me, telling me as much about a week ago when I interviewed him ahead of the speech that he gave at the, the Reagan Ranch, I believe, last week. Uh, give me a sense, uh, Grover, if you could, of what you're going to be looking for, when you're going to be looking for a, a, a plan from the White House here. We're, we're awaiting that. We're awaiting a, a comprehensive plan here from the, the big six, as you call them. Yeah, the, the White House will announce a plan that has House and Senate uh, support. So they're not, not going to have a plan or we're not going to have three plans or two plans or one and a half plans. You're going to have one plan uh, by September 28th. That will go to the House uh, Ways and Means Committee, who will be thoroughly aware of it. They may have some ideas or amendments they want, but they will be fully uh, understanding exactly what it is and largely in support. Look, 
everybody agrees the corporate rate is going towards 15. The small business rate, the subchapter S rate, is going towards 15. These Grover, are dramatic. Everybody agrees, reductions. but actually, don't we need someone to lay it out? Yes. No. 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 That's what it's going to take till September 28. I'm just saying, if, if everyone agrees on where you're going, the only question is how quickly you can get there, whether some of these tax cuts are temporary and others are permanent. But the idea of the border adjustability of the corporate income tax was divisive. The senators from Walmart didn't like it. Uh, and so it probably wasn't going anywhere. They took that right. off the table. Grover. And in Paul Ryan's world, we're at 97 percent agreement, not 80 now. Uh, answer me this. Do you think last week was a setback for the president? And if it was in the wake of Charlottesville, does it mean that he will be in a hurry to push tax reform through? Um, that's a, that, I hadn't thought of it that way. I thought there were two big things this administration, the House and the Senate, wanted to do before the 2018 election. One was health care. The other was tax reform. Health care has been put off. Even if they come back and visit it, it will be a skinny bill, not a uh, significant reform. Uh, so to get the economy strengthened, you have two tools now. One is all the deregulation that's happening, and that's big, and the FCC changes, and the FTC changes, and the FDA changes, and FERC, and all this stuff. That's all big, 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 and 50 years from now we'll go, wow, that was, that was a big part of this. But none of those make headlines. The press and, and voters will focus on the tax reform and whether job creation and wealth creation followed. We need strong economic growth in the first two quarters of next year. This is what the White House understands, the House and the Senate leadership understands. And if you're running for re-election, and all the congressmen are, a third of the senators are, you want robust growth starting in the third quarter of this year, if you can, uh, by making sure everyone understands that the pro-growth parts of tax reform uh, will take effect from September 28th, from the date that they drop the mm. bill, not from the date that it passes. Nobody should hold up an investment or delay a decision based on tax policy. They should know that the new rules will be the old rules. Uh, but you need to have strong growth in the first two quarters of next year so that everybody gets that the economy is stronger, understands it's because of tax reform. And to a certain extent, other challenges the president has fade into the background if he has delivered the growth that he said was his top priority. So to that ex extent, it is increasingly important. I would argue it was made more important by delaying health care reform. Grover, it's, it strikes me that there is a, a fire underneath a, a lot of Republican congressmen to get something done, and I want to, using that, ask you about the state of the pledge, something you're, you're famous for, getting congressmen to sign a, a pledge here that they won't raise taxes. Are, are you at all worried well, that the pressure to do something, particularly after what happened with health care, might lead some of them, might lead perhaps a majority of them to, uh, to opt to raise taxes? Uh, absolutely not. The tax reform that we're talking about is a multi-trillion dollar tax reduction, uh, it does that, one, um, by taking a dynamic uh, view of the economy, joint taxes dyna scoring dynamically. Uh, so this will be a net tax cut uh, period. It, it in no way comes close to violating the pledge. Uh, the pledge would be if you sat down with the Democrats and <laughs> passed a net tax increase. Mm. That isn't going to happen, largely because 90-plus percent of Republicans have signed the pledge, kept it, and are never, ever, 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 ever going to raise taxes. 
Grover, let me ask you lastly here what your group is doing here to, to push for tax reform. I was speaking with Tim Phillips about a week ago about the, the work that Americans for Prosperity is doing, the money that he's invested in this cause, the, the events that he's holding a, a, around the country. Give us a sense of, of what you're doing. Can you put a number to it and sort of how is your, uh, your advocacy for this changed here as, as we move ahead past this August recess? Sure. The focus has moved from health care to tax reform. Mm-hmm. Health care was supposed to be a trillion-dollar tax cut, so it's very much a tax bill that got uh, uh, shunted aside. Uh, Americans for Tax Reform runs the center-right coalition meeting of 150 center-right leaders in D.C. every week. But there are 40 state capitals where similar meetings are structured at the state level. So we're working in each of those states through and with everything from the state think tank to state taxpayer groups to all the various state activist groups, business groups, NFIB, chamber, and so on, uh, to make sure that in every state, we have voices that are focused on what exactly is in tax care, uh, tax reform, and why we need it. Uh, we'll, we'll be doing ads, too, and we're just mm. trying to figure out where we need to do and raising resources to do that. Uh, but over the last several months and now, you'll see strong support mm-hmm. out in the uh, grassroots targeting individual congressmen, senators, and the newspapers and radio talk shows right. that they listen to. Grover, great to speak with you. Let's talk again once we get that White House uh, plan. Grover Norquist there. Joining us now is Dan Ackerson, former chairman and CEO of GM. He joins us from our uh, Bloomberg 991 studios in Washington, D.C. It's great to have you with us here this morning. And I wonder if we could use what I just mentioned as a peg to talk about what business is interested in hearing from the White House at this point, how dialogical relationship it is between business uh, and the White House? What would you like to see happen with regard to that relationship going forward? Well, I think there needs to be uh, an interactive discussion uh, based on respect. And, um, and I think uh, there's clearly that every CEO, given the opportunity to sit on a policy uh, formulating uh, body that mm. the president chairs, would welcome the opportunity because he or she's got to represent their shareholders. They want to make sure their point of view is reflected in any uh, developing strategy or policy. And uh, But then, too, uh, the president has a constituency that he or she must uh, make sure that they're talking to. And the CEO also has a constituency. It's the customer base, obviously. And also, he has his employees and his uh, suppliers that are looking at him or her to make sure that uh, there's shared values, shared perspectives, and and to put it in a cliche, that everybody's on the same page. And and I think there was a a rift in that uh, fabric of dialogue Mm -hmm. over the last uh, week or so. So, Dan Ackerson, you have that that rift as you describe it. Um, Early on in this administration, we saw a lot of business leaders going to the White House, meeting with the president. He appeared to be listening to them. We had the the video footage of the beginning of a lot of those uh, meetings. You had Steve Schwartzman convening this group of experts uh, that comprised the Strategic and Economic uh, Policy Forum. Uh, I wonder where we go from here. How do you pick up the pieces from this? How do you you make that relationship a robust one again? Well, you know, I think leadership is always comprised of uh, such topics or elements as uh, character, competency, integrity, empathy, temperament. And I think, uh, although we have rarely seen this, I think the president essentially has to, in some form or fashion, has to apologize for what happened. You know, I had 
uh, my dad, my father, who was born in the early 20s, and five uncles fought against a perspective that was really morally corrupt, and it was represented by a swastika. And so when a president of the United States, the leader of the United States and the free world says that there were two sides and there were good people on both sides, that's just anathema to everything I've ever been exposed to and what my family and I served as well fought for. And you say that that is just so wrong that it has to be amended. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what went on in Charlottesville, but there were 19 people injured and one killed. None of them were carrying tiki uh, torches the night before, screaming Jews won't replace us and things of that nature. It was just wrong. And I think uh, humility and, and the asking for forgiveness of uh, a portion of our society would be in order. I don't think it's forthcoming. So it will be, uh, depending on the company and the person, uh, it'll be difficult to, uh, to ascertain exactly how that relationship will evolve. If I were still an active CEO, I would try to reach across and see if there couldn't be some uh, explanation or accommodation. But uh, I think it's going to be difficult for a while. And I think certain industries, consumer, for example, it will be uh, more difficult for a CEO to uh, look or appear to be, uh, you know, uh, to have a more constructive relationship with the president, which I think is a, a sad state of affairs. There should be a good working relationship between American business and uh, the chief executive of our country. But Dan Eckerson, do you believe that unless the president apologizes, so if he does not apologize, and I don't know if there's a time frame if it needs to be in the next two weeks, do you believe that he will actually lose the respect and the faith of CEOs? And where does that put corporate America at? Well, I can only speak for how I would see that. Uh, we've all made mistakes in our lives, and an apology, a sincere apology, says, you know, I, I just was out of line, and I want to take this moment, this point in time, this opportunity to apologize. There, There is no excuse for uh, the KKK. It's a domestic terrorism group. They've done terrible things in the history of this country, and there's no excuse for supporting uh, any organization that wants to fly a swastika in our in our population. I just, uh, it, this is not a, there's no gray area around those in my mind. It's a black and white issue. And I think fundamentally, I hope and believe that the president feels that and he just, uh, and it goes to one of the elements of what I described as leadership, it's temperament. You, you can't allow yourself to, um, to become so emotional and say things that you will regret later. Uh, it's, it's like a marriage. Uh, it's, it's, it's based on trust. You have to believe that the guy in the corner office or in the Oval Office is uh, that shares values that uh, I think are basic to the American experience. Do you believe that the White House will recover or that this Trump administration will recover from it if the president doesn't apologize? Hard to say. I think as time goes on, this will fade uh, a bit. But there have been uh, there's a segment of our population that I think are really uh, have been uh, damaged, hurt, uh, and, and will be suspicious for a while. But it's not impossible to win back uh, the goodwill uh, if, of the people uh, with good deeds. But I mean, things. For example, uh, I also mentioned empathy. It's just you, you have to be steady. You have to be predictable. You can't. 
I remember the uh, uh, Rose Garden uh, celebration when the House passed their version of repeal and replace of Obamacare. And Obamacare is flawed. I don't think anybody in their right mind would say it's, it's a perfect piece of legislation. Uh, it needs to be fixed. But then several weeks later, he calls it mean. Well, he had a celebration of it, and then he couldn't get the Senate to pass it. And then you can see in our legislators, our senators and our congressmen, they, they kind of go, well, what, what's this all about? On one hand, it's a Rose Garden celebration, subsequently called mean. And then he's angry and calls out senators that have constituencies that they uh, represent. And I can tell you, as an American, and God, I've been blessed in so many ways, but you say to yourself, uh, empathy. Uh, I, I don't want to live in a country that doesn't take care of the most vulnerable among us. And uh, in our family, we've had some medical problems the last couple of years. And uh, we, we were blessed to have insurance. What, what if I weren't? What, what happens to people on the margin, unemployed, uh, where they have a major medical problem? Do we just say, well, too bad for you and best of luck? And you, you can't say that 25 or whatever the number is, but I heard 25 million Americans in the next five or six years would be uh, without uh, insurance. And, and somehow there's got to be a compromise. And, and I think a good leader that would gain the good, the trust and respect of the American public, regardless of political affiliation, and just said, look, we all know that Obamacare is flawed. I need six people on either side of the uh, aisle. I don't need to pick the right wing or the left wing. Two, two groups of six, a dozen people. Uh, and come back to me with the five or six things that we need to replace to make it better. I mean, at the time they passed Obamacare, I remember, and they said they can't compete across state lines. Mm. Why? Crazy? Competition's good. And you can uh, expand the pool, the risk pool that the insurance company's taken on, and you can you can essentially cross-subsidize from high-risk areas to low-risk areas. They're, they're just basic, fundamental business decisions that were overlooked because uh, Obamacare was not passed with one Republican vote. And I guess repeal and replace would be voted without one Democratic vote. You can't reform one-sixth of the U.S. economy uh, uh, without having a bipartisan bill that both parties can live with. And um, so th there's work to be done. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that'd be a good place to start. Uh, to go back and make a valiant effort and, and and get a select number to come back with us with a bipartisan come back to the entire Congress with a bipartisan view, and you'd have the right wing on one side and the left wing mm -hmm. on the other side saying that's not good enough. Well, Medicare, believe it or not, you're probably too young to remember. <laughs> Medicare was very controversial at the time. Yeah, very controversial. But look at the amount of Alzheimer's uh, patients there. What if we didn't have Medicaid? What, how would families take care of their loved ones as they got older? And it's a very popular program today. Dan, we've got to leave it there. Thank you very much for those valuable comments. Dan Ackerson, former uh, chairman and CEO of General Motors, joining us from our 991 studios in Washington, D.C., here on Bloomberg Surveillance. David Gura with Francine Laco, who is in for Tom Keene. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.